welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. I have only three cases for you all this week, but I go in-depth into all of them. So let's not waste time with trifling news notations and attemptively witty observations, shall we? I've got a new sponsor, though, as you'll all hear, and I'm overwhelmingly grateful about that about all the podcast sponsors and Patreon supporters. Thanks, guys. And actually, after I recorded that, and very late on Friday evening, the Fifth Circuit published another case. So, we've got four cases. And here they are. Our first case is Hirao v. Attorney General of the United States, published by the Third Circuit on February 13th, 2024. Welcome back to the podcast, Third Circuit. My outline tells me it's been two and a half months. This case is about withholding of removal under the INA and Convention Against Torture Protection. And it's a long one. Mr. Harrow is a member of the Bandabao tribe in Somalia, which is a sub-clan of the Rir Hamar Bendiri. That in turn makes him an ethnic Somali Bantu, which is a minority in Somalia and Mr. Harrow and his family were targeted in Mogadishu, the capital, because of their tribal affiliation. Majority tribes, quote, burned the homes of his people, who did not have any rights. Al-Shabaab and other terror groups have also subjected his family to violence. Mr. Harrow's brother, Usman, died in 2005 in a hotel explosion that killed 700 people. And a bombing in Mogadishu killed Mr. Harrow's sister, Fatima, end quote. This is all just the first paragraph of the decision, by the way. And I seem to remember that hotel explosion. That was a horrible thing. The family fled to Kenya in 1992. Probably lived in a refugee camp. The decision's a bit unclear. But it was all until an aunt had them smuggled to the United States in 2000. Mr. Harrow immediately applied for and was granted asylum. He married a U.S. citizen in 2001. Quite frankly, a would-be happy ending to a fraught and sad story. But Mr. Harrow was convicted of a healthcare fraud scheme in 2018, 
And you guessed it, he never naturalized. An immigration judge ultimately held that that conviction was an aggravated felony, making Mr. Harrow removable and barring him from applying for asylum again. It wouldn't bar him from readjusting to lawful permanent resident status under the Special Refugee Adjustment of Status statute with a waiver, perhaps, which is what he tried to do. He needs a waiver surely, though, because the IJ likely also deemed the conviction, which involved federal mail and wire fraud as well, to be a crime involving moral turpitude. Still waivable, though, and a Section 209 refugee adjustment is a more favorable type of adjustment with an easier-to-obtain waiver than, say, is a Section 212H waiver for normal adjustment under INA Section 245A. Mr. Harrow also submitted a Form I-589 application for withholding of removal and Convention Against Torture protection. For reasons unexplained, though, he withdrew his adjustment of status application at the merits hearing. Is it because he was already a lawful permanent resident and therefore couldn't use a Section 209 adjustment? Maybe. Candidly, I've never done a Section 209 readjustment, so maybe it's not possible. But also, my birdies tell me that a petition for certiorari was just filed in the Supreme Court on this issue in another case. And in any event... Why not have his wife then file an I-130 petition and apply for a Section 245A adjustment with a Section 212H waiver of that Shirley CIMT? He'd be eligible notwithstanding the aggravated felony because he didn't enter the United States as a lawful permanent resident that first time. Seems more likely to succeed than withholding of removal and cat protection, no? I don't know. I'm sure there were reasons. But regardless, it all became about withholding and cat. As relevant here, Mr. Harrow submitted lots of evidence and asserted his membership in the particular social group of repatriated minority Somalis. He also claimed that the Somali government and al-Shabaab will subject him to torture because of his westernization, his extended time abroad, the suspicion that he is a western spy, his minority status as a Bantu, his lack of clan ties, the perception that he could pay ransom, and his refusal to adhere to al-Shabaab's rigid and extreme views of Islam. The IJ denied. And maybe, just maybe, this is why Mr. Harrow didn't pursue that alternative adjustment of status route? Seems like he provided some false facts when he got asylum that first go-around in 2000. Seems like everything that I've said so far is true, but he may have added or said other stuff in 2000-2001 because a smuggler told him to. So maybe the IJ made a frivolous asylum finding, which would then bar Mr. Harrell from adjustment and all relief under the INA? I don't know. I'm kind of just riffing here. Again, there is no mention of a frivolous asylum finding in this case, and I'm unsure whether it would bar withholding of removal anyway, but it wouldn't bar cat protection, I know that. And in any event, the IJ denied both of those things on the merits for many reasons, and the BIA affirmed. But before the Third Circuit, things got narrowed, so that's what we'll focus on. I've gone on enough tangents already. Here are the issues. 1. Whether the BIA erred in finding that repatriated minority Somalis is not a cognizable social group. 2. Whether the BIA erred in finding that Mr. Harrell was not likely to face torture in Somalia. And 3. Whether the IJ erred in finding that the Somali government would not acquiesce in torture. So first the first. According to the Third Circuit, repatriated minority Somalis is not a cognizable social group. It's not particular or socially distinct enough, said the Third Circuit, agreeing with the BIA. 
It can be large or small, and it isn't limited to specific benchmarks like, say, clan membership. The Third Circuit doesn't think the group shares a common enough trait, like, say, Iranian women or Somali females. Groups that it seems that the Third Circuit has deemed cognizable in the past? The term repatriated is also too broad to the Third Circuit. Clan membership is a cognizable particular social group, of course, but it seems that that ground was abandoned at the Third Circuit. Without a valid particular social group, withholding of removal is out. Fair enough. But on CAT, well, that's going back. The Third Circuit believes that the IJ and BIA ignored or disregarded pertinent evidence. It may be true that under Third Circuit precedent, a non-citizen must point to evidence for why he specifically will be singled out and tortured. Fair enough. But here, Mr. Harrow, quote, provided ample support for his claim that he will be singled out and tortured if returned to Somalia due to his status as a returnee from the United States and as a member of a minority clan, end quote. So look at that. Groups similar to returnees from the United States to Somalia might not be particular social groups, but that doesn't mean that it won't qualify someone for cat protection. Cat protection, of course, has no nexus requirement, and it requires an aggregation of all potential sources of potential torture. The IJ, for example, recognized that al-Shabaab targets returnees from Western countries as spies and infidels, but believed that Mr. Harrow's 28 years abroad negated his ability to make this individualized cat showing. But to the Third Circuit, quote, it is exactly that 28-year absence that supports his being singled out. And the IJ ignored extensive evidence in the record, including reports and declarations of experts, that returnees from the United States are easily identifiable as American because of clothing, learned gestures, weight, light skin color, and accent. End quote. For all long-term Somalis in the United States, it would seem, quote, the evidence demonstrates that returnees like Mr. Harrow are, quote, considered inherently suspect and targeted for violence and death on this basis, end quote. Seems like an important thing to remember for Somali cases. Remember, I warned you, it's a long one. As regards the IJ's finding that Mr. Harrow could relocate to Mogadishu, quote, this finding is contrary to the evidence in the record, end quote. In fact, the Third Circuit believes that according to the Department of State, relocation itself in Somalia can be a dangerous thing, as, quote, checkpoints operated by government forces, allied groups, armed militias, clan factors, and al-Shabaab inhibit movement and expose citizens to looting, extortion, harassment, and violence, end quote. That's the Department of State. In fact, a whopping 35% of surveyed individuals could not even leave the Mogadishu International Airport without being detained, and 90% of those surveyed experienced some form of abuse, torture, interrogation, or extortion at the airport. The IJ's contrary finding was the result of a cherry-picking of facts at the Third Circuit. Quote, in fact, there is evidence that only a few thousand Benderi and Rirhamar remain in Somalia at this point, with even fewer in Mogadishu, to the point where the clan has almost ceased to exist. End quote. And al-Shabaab is still in Mogadishu. It goes on and on. If you have a Somali claim, you need to pick up this Georgetown Immigration Law Journal article surveying the experience of Somali Bantus that the Third Circuit is relying heavily upon, and then cite to it to explain how at least one circuit has not only found that article credible, but highly persuasive. 
At least that's what I would do. The Third Circuit also believes the record shows that the Somali government likely acquiesces to torture. Even if the Rearheimer have gained some political power, as the IJ apparently believed, it's still small. And in any event, the Department of State reports that at least as of 2017, quote, minority groups, often lacking armed militias, continued to be disproportionately subjected to killings, torture, rape, and other bad stuff by faction militias and majority clan members, often with the acquiescence of federal and local authorities, end quote. Thank you for using that helpful word, Department of State. And here's a big one, too. Just because the Somali government is in active conflict with al-Shabaab doesn't mean that, quote, government was willfully blind because an applicant can establish governmental acquiescence even if the government opposes the organization that is engaged in torturous acts, end quote. Like, say, the Salvadoran government's fight against MS-13? The Third Circuit also believes the IJ largely ignored this helpful Georgetown article, which has a lot to say about acquiescence. If that wasn't good enough for claims like this, the Third Circuit then holds that actually, quote, in many regions of Somalia, al-Shabaab fully governs. Meanwhile, in areas run by the Somali government, al-Shabaab has infiltrated all levels of the government and security forces, end quote. That is a big deal amongst many big deals I've already discussed. It means that Mr. Harrow might not even need to show that the government acquiesces to the torture he fears at all because his torturers are the government, or at least are in part in some areas. Quote, As at least one declaration in the record notes, an individual can be a policeman by day and an al-Shabaab operative by night. End quote. I wonder where else in the world that logic might apply. It all means big congratulations to Caitlin J. Costello and Christopher M. Casaza for petitioner. Judge Phipps dissented on the cat stuff. But this majority opinion is quite the opinion for Somali cat claims. If only Mr. Harrow had naturalized. Or, of course, not got involved in healthcare fraud. And that is Harrow v. Attorney General of the United States. Our next case is Guzman Maldonado v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on February 14th, 2024. This case is about aggravated felonies. Mr. Guzman Maldonado is from Mexico and became a lawful permanent resident of the United States. But in 2019, he pled guilty in Arizona to three counts of armed robbery in violation of Arizona Revised Statute, Section 13-1904-A. He received two eight-year prison terms to run concurrent, along with two years probation, well over the one year required of crime of violence or theft-type aggravated felonies. Charged as removable for many things, the Ninth Circuit affirmed on aggravated felony, and it was the theft-type. INA Section 101A43G defines as an aggravated felony a theft or burglary offense for which the term of imprisonment is at least one year. Armed robbery definitely isn't burglary, so for our purposes, then, that means that under the categorical approach, we must compare the elements of generic theft with the elements of the Arizona statute. The generic definition of theft has the following elements. 1. A taking of property or an exercise of control over property. 2. Without consent of the owner. 
Three, with the criminal intent to deprive the owner of rights and benefits of ownership, even if such deprivation is less than total or permanent. Then, according to the Ninth Circuit, Arizona armed robbery requires that a prosecutor prove and a jury find that the defendant, quote, while armed with a real or simulated deadly weapon, one, took property from a person or his immediate presence, two, against that person's will, three, using or threatening force with the coexistent intent to take the property, end quote. The Ninth Circuit fairly summarily reasoned that on its face, the Arizona statute is a match to the federal definition of theft. It's like a similar Washington robbery statute that was previously adjudicated by the Ninth Circuit in 2014, said the panel. Under Ninth Circuit precedent, the element of threatening force, as the Arizona statute requires, quote, has been interpreted by Arizona state courts to require specific intent to steal, end quote. That's how the third elements of both the federal generic theft offense and the Arizona statute match up. The force implies intent. Mr. Guzman Maldonado, of course, disagreed, wouldn't you? He analogized his case to the Ninth Circuit's 2020 decision in Lopez Aguilar v. Barr, wherein the Ninth Circuit held that an Oregon statute was not a categorical match to a theft-aggravated felony because it encompassed, quote, consensual takings, end quote. That's a bp or before podcast decision, but as described by this panel, the argument is a common one for such crimes and such analyses. Oregon robbery can be committed by deception, and technically, theft by deception is consensual. Under 9th and 11th Circuit precedent at a minimum, and likely many more, deceptive trickery robbery is surely illegal, but it doesn't match the generic federal definition of theft. Simply put, fraud is usually not theft. Be that as it may explain the ninth, but this Arizona statute does not permit conviction through deception or trickery. Under the text of the statute and those it cross-references, quote, the statute applies only to thefts committed against the will of the property owner, end quote. That's non-consensual to the court. It's actually pretty tricky, published decisions usually are. Seems that, counterintuitively, Arizona theft may not match the generic definition of theft because it, quote, may be possible in Arizona to commit theft by consensual means, end quote. But that's a different statute, that's theft, and Arizona robbery isn't simply Arizona theft with a weapon. Arizona robbery requires that against-the-will added element, which makes it materially different than Arizona theft for federal generic theft purposes even though it's robbery and not theft. Got it? Nor does Arizona robbery, again, unlike Arizona theft, encompass the theft of services, which would also seemingly take the offense out of the realm of generic federal theft. Heads up, though, Ninth Circuit practitioners. Given all the ink spent on the discussion, I have a strong feeling that theft itself, in violation of Arizona Revised Statute Section 13-1802A2 and 3, is not an aggravated felony theft offense, should your client ever become unlucky enough to get the conviction. But again, this is robbery and not theft. And it meant that Mr. Guzman Maldonado lost his case and lost his green card. And that is Guzman Maldonado v. Garland.
Are you tired of answering your own phones? Or of wasting your valuable time on unqualified consultations? Staffy Live is the only 24-7 live receptionist and intake service specialized on immigration law. Staffy Live specialists are highly empathetic, bilingual individuals who know how to deal with adversity, have a background in client care, and are trained to qualify callers by asking the right questions. Staffy Live goes one step ahead in only scheduling qualified consultations on your calendar and then doing follow-ups when needed. Staffy Live is giving a 15-day free trial for any law firm interested with no strings attached. To apply, visit www.getstaffy.com. That's G-E-T-S-T-A-F-I.com. And click on Get Started. Make sure to put in the code free. Links, of course, in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Driftwood Capital. Driftwood Capital boasts a 30-plus year track record transacting on more than $3 billion in hospitality assets. Since 2015, Driftwood Capital has successfully implemented the EB-5 program into their development deals, helping more than 160 families find a secure path to residency through their projects. Driftwood Capital is a vertically integrated commercial real estate firm specializing in hospitality with dedicated acquisitions, development, lending, and management divisions. Their goal is to create long-term partnerships with its network of more than 1,200 active investors from the United States and abroad while targeting attractive returns. Driftwood's unique approach involves managing all aspects in-house, from developing renowned hotel brands such as Marriott, Hilton, and Hyatt, to managing their portfolio of more than 80 hotels in the United States. If you want to learn more about Driftwood Capital, check out the show notes. And of course, let them know who sent you. So here's that Fifth Circuit case. Alejos Perez v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on February 16th, 2024. It's a big old non-citizen adverse crimmigration decision out of the Fifth. Mr. Alejo Perez has been a lawful permanent resident since 1972, but alas, never naturalized. And he got a number of convictions. As I've already gone deep into the other ones this week, and this case is uber complicated, his case comes down to whether his conviction under Texas Health and Safety Code Section 481.1161, possession of a substance in Penalty Group 2-A, constitutes a violation of a law relating to a controlled substance in violation of INA Section 237-A2BI. Previously, the Fifth Circuit held in this very case that the relevant statute is not divisible as to the substance possessed. So either every substance listed must have been listed under the Federal Controlled Substance Act in 2018 when Mr. Alejo Perez was convicted, or he wins. That's the categorical approach. At least it's how it works in all other circuits. And indeed, Texas's drug statute is overbroad, as it criminalized possession of naphtholindane in 2018. And apparently the federal government did not. Don't make me say that substance again. But the Fifth Circuit is special with all this. 
In the Fifth Circuit, even here, where the statute is clearly overbroad as compared to the federal definition of the removable offense, a non-citizen must show that there is a realistic probability that Texas would criminalize conduct related to that overbroad substance or another overbroad substance. Begs the question, though, right? Why would Texas list the substance if it didn't intend to prosecute it? But in any event, that's why the prior decision in this case sent it back to the BIA to determine if there's a realistic probability that Texas criminalizes possession of namphtholindane or some other overbroad drug. There, I said it again. As I read it, this requirement, this application of the realistic probability test, is unique to the Fifth Circuit. Not only that, this is all occurring in the removability context, where DHS bears the burden of proof. But here we are, with namphtholindane and Mr. Alejos Perez needing to find a case showing that Texas would prosecute possession of that or some other substance criminalized by Section 41.1161 that's not criminalized under federal law in 2018. In an effort to do so, Mr. Alejos Perez argued that, quote, in Vector v. Barr, out of the Fifth Circuit in 2020, the Fifth Circuit all but conceded that Texas had prosecuted a drug listed in Penalty Group 2A that was not federally criminalized at the time of prosecution, end quote. And that's Carter v. Texas out of the Texas Criminal Appeals Court in 2021. But, continued Mr. Lejos Perez, quote, because that case was pending before the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, the highest court in Texas for criminal matters at the time, Vector concluded that the Carter case could not be used to demonstrate realistic probability, end quote. I don't quite understand that logic either, as Texas had clearly prosecuted the drug regardless of what had happened on high appeal, but so be it. And in any event, apparently, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ultimately upheld the drug conviction at issue in Carter, meaning that the case would appear to satisfy the realistic probability test. Tell me why we're wrong, Fifth Circuit. Well, there's a few reasons. The Fifth Circuit's realistic probability test is not satisfied simply by pointing to a brief in a case, nor is it satisfied by even relying on a case where the overbroad substance was actually prosecuted, where that case is pending before an appellate court, because in that case, quote, it necessarily is not settled law, end quote. It is truly a nearly impossible burden to meet in the Fifth Circuit, this realistic probability test and was unmet with the Vetcher and Carter cases, said the fifth. In Carter, explained the court, the defendant was arrested for possessing a drug several weeks after that drug was added to the Federal Controlled Substance Act. So that drug was not overbroad at the time of his arrest. Mr. Lejos Perez argued that Texas was still nevertheless clearly criminalizing that substance before its addition to the federal list as Texas was executing numerous search warrants before the arrest for that drug. No matter, said the Fifth Circuit. I mean, yes, that almost surely happened, but to meet the Fifth Circuit's totally unique application of the realistic probability test, an LPR, quote, must provide actual cases where state courts have applied the statute in an overbroad way, end quote. The Carter case did not satisfy that to the Fifth Circuit. Before engaging in that whole discussion, the Fifth Circuit actually refused to consider other case law citations that were asserted for the first time on petition for review, an issue I'll expand on even more in a sec. I touch on it here to talk about exhaustion. 
Notwithstanding the Supreme Court's overturning Fifth Circuit precedent and holding that a failure to exhaust an argument is a non-mandatory and excusable claims processing rule, the Fifth Circuit nevertheless held that it could not consider these new cases unsighted before the BIA here, even if they won the day for Mr. Alejos Perez. To the Fifth Circuit, the mere, quote, failure to cite certain authorities before the BIA amounts to a failure to exhaust administrative remedies with respect to these authorities, and therefore the court cannot consider them, end quote. At least in the context of drugs and the realistic probability test. This despite that under non-immigration, quote, ordinary circumstances, parties may, of course, cite new legal authorities on appeal of an administrative decision without running into an exhaustion problem, end quote. And this despite that, quote, the question of whether a violation of a state criminal law relates to a controlled substance is a pure question of law that is reviewed de novo, end quote, by the Fifth Circuit. But in the realistic probability, immigration context, a failure to cite to these cases below will be deemed unexhausted and not considered by the Fifth Circuit. All of this begs the question, shouldn't the Fifth Circuit, quote, not apply the realistic probability test at all, at least in this manner, as it is inconsistent with Supreme Court precedent and generally unfair, end quote? That's what Mr. Alejos Perez argued in the alternative, taking the Fifth Circuit's unique jurisprudence head on. But one panel can't overturn another panel in any circuit, much less lots of precedent that's on the issue, so even if this panel agreed, and it doesn't appear to, it couldn't do what Mr. Alejos Perez wants it to in this context. And that's true enough, you need en banc or Supreme Court review to change the Fifth Circuit's unique and near-impossible-to-meet realistic probability test requirement. Meaning that Mr. Alejos Perez loses his green card. Judge Oldham concurred to explain why he doesn't like the categorical approach and other precedent, and that in any event, he wouldn't even apply it in cases such as this. Anyway, back to what I was discussing with those unsighted cases. In a footnote, the Fifth Circuit states that Mr. Alejos Perez also cited Stevens v. State of Texas, a 2018 Texas Appeals Court decision, in his brief before the Fifth Circuit, and that elsewhere, I think a 28J letter, he cited a whole host of other supporting cases. But apparently he didn't do so below to the BIA. So again, the Fifth Circuit didn't consider all of those potentially dispositive, realistic probability-satisfying cases. It's a bit confusing to me because this is a question of law. If one of the cases truly prosecuted overbroad conduct, that kind of ends the discussion. Well, the Fifth Circuit believes that in the context of its unique realistic probability test requirement, quote, the state criminal cases are more like evidence than law, end quote. So there you go. That's the rationale. And actually, Mr. Alejos Perez did cite the Stevens case below to the BIA whatever y'all, for the next one. Read this decision, get counsel's briefs and 28J letter, and cite all the cases that weren't cited before the IJ and the BIA in your litigation of this same statute next time. Although watch out for footnote 9. And can you imagine being a pro se non-citizen? And that is Alejos Perez v. Garland. Our final case is Mestanek Bijadu.
published by the Fourth Circuit on February 13, 2024. This is a litigation case about I-130 denials. That's what happened to Mr. Mestinik. Or that is to say the petition filed by his U.S. citizen wife, Miss Mestinik. They were and presumably are validly married, so it should have been easy to have an I-130 immediate relative petition approved so that Mr. Mestinik could adjust to lawful permanent resident status. The problem is that INA Section 204C bars USCIS from approving a visa petition where the beneficiary, quote, has attempted or conspired to enter into a marriage for the purpose of evading the immigration laws, end quote, even in the past. And that's what USCIS accused Mr. Mestinik of having done with his first wife, Angel. So let's travel back in time. Even before that initial interview in 2014, the angel marriage interview, USCIS suspected fraud because it seems that the couple weren't living together contrary to what they wrote in their application. The officer still had suspicions after the interview and so had a second one where he separated the couple. The dreaded Stokes interview, as we in the biz know. The couple maintained that they lived together, though, during their Stokes, but USCIS investigations before this interview indicated very strongly that they did not. And during this second interview, there were apparent discrepancies. The couple testified differently regarding the amount of times that they'd been apart, and even how they got to their wedding, apparently. So USCIS sent the whole matter to FDNS, USCIS's Fraud Detection Unit. I would be curious as to statistics on how many times FDNS doesn't ultimately find fraud. I've certainly never seen it. Anyone want to let me know? Well, throw mud in my face, Fourth Circuit. I spoke too soon. Astonishingly, this is the case. Despite their strong suspicions, quote, because neither Mr. Mestinek nor Angel had made an admission of fraud... FDNS ultimately concluded that insufficient information had been discovered to establish fraud and categorized the fraud determination as inconclusive, end quote. Shortly after that, the couple divorced, something Mr. Mestinek notified USCIS of. USCIS therefore deemed the I-485 withdrawn, the adjustment of status application. But the I-130 is technically Angel's application, and she never notified USCIS, so they never withdrew it. Although I believe by regulation it should have been automatically terminated by the divorce, no? Anyway, then Mr. Mestinek married Mary, who will become Miss Mestinek, and she files an I-130 petition. That was referred to FDNS, which also found that the marriage was genuine, so I'm wrong twice in this very case. But then, quote, FDNS reopened the investigation into Mr. Mestinek and Angel's marriage to determine whether he was subject to the marriage fraud bar, end quote. At this point, FDNS went all in. They found Angel and they interviewed her for an hour. She admitted the fraud at a Starbucks. Gratuitous fact, but really goes to highlight the arbitrariness of life to me. According to FDNS's rendition of this interview... Angel said that Mr. Mestinik promised her $10,000. At the time, she was homeless and needed the money. He only gave her $800 and promised the rest in the future. They were intimate, and they did live together, but Angel got cold feet eventually and couldn't do it. Mr. Mestinik reportedly threatened to kill her if he was deported, and said that he had secretly taped her being intimate with him. So the new I-130 from his second wife, Mary, was accordingly denied as Section 204C barred. 
In response, the Mestinics lawyered up and asked to review the record. USCIS promised they'd do so, and that they'd then provide the couple 30 days to respond. A notice of intent to deny annoyed, it appears. So not an outright denial just yet. USCIS did so, three years later, and still only gave 30 days to respond. It's USCIS's world, and we're all just living in it. And it does seem that by this point, USCIS was all in and was questioning whether Mr. Mestinik was even validly married to Mary because he may not have ever validly divorced Angel as he had not, quote, satisfied Florida's statutory six-month residency requirement before filing for divorce, end quote. He might have been in another state. Simply a mess. In response to the Noid, the Mestinics submitted a declaration signed by Angel saying that her prior confession to FDNS was coerced and false, quote, and that she had written and signed the statement only because the FDNS agents had threatened her with jail if she did not do so, end quote. This case is really heating up. But USCS's mind was made up. And in any event, it didn't believe that the divorce from Angel was valid, meaning that the marriage to Mary was not valid. Everything denied. Rather than appeal to the BIA, which is allowed for such things, the couple sued in federal district court, the District of South Carolina of all places, where they lived. They did not succeed. And the Fourth Circuit affirmed the district court. It's largely an Administrative Procedures Act challenge, of course, and it seems like only the I-130 denial is at issue, as Patel very likely would have barred an I-45 challenge anyway. But also, if the I-130 is successful, an I-45 will be much more likely to get approved, naturally. And quite the initial argument, counsel. Quote, the Mestinics start with the ambitious claim that USCIS lacks the authority to investigate marriage fraud when adjudicating Form I-130 petitions. In essence, they argue that the Homeland Security Act of 2002 prohibited USCIS from undertaking any investigations unless specifically authorized to do so by Congress in subsequent legislation. End quote. And hey, this is the type of rationale that the Supreme Court is all about at the moment when it comes to other agency actions. Agencies, some justices seem to believe, can't do anything unless it is specifically laid out in detail and with serious nuance by Congress. So why not USCIS too, right? Not when it comes to I-130 investigations, said the Fourth Circuit. Quote, the Messinics are correct that the Homeland Security Act generally assigned former INS's adjudicative functions to USCIS and its investigative program to the sub-agencies that would become ICE and CBP, end quote. Not USCIS. So there's an argument. But that does not mean that USCIS is restricted from doing investigations, said the Fourth Circuit. To the contrary, the Homeland Security Act has vague language that the Fourth Circuit reads as permitting USCIS to have an investigations department. I wonder if the Supreme Court would so hold if, for example, we're talking about vague and ambiguous language as regards inspectors on fishing boats. I'm not bitter, you're bitter. Also, the Fourth Circuit believes that the Department of Homeland Security Secretary has appropriately delegated I-130 investigations to USCIS. And did you know that FDNS now has 650 officers? I did not. 
Were the Fourth Circuit to agree with the Mestinics, quote, we would not merely be undoing the work of an isolated USCIS officer, rather, we would be holding that much of the labor undertaken by the FDNS is ultra-virus and undermining its investigatory work in countless marriage fraud determinations, end quote. Next, the Mestinex alleged that the administrative record USAS provided in litigation was incomplete, as it lacked an FDNS fraud memo. It lacked FDNS notes during the age confession, and it lacked a, quote, ICE declination, end quote, giving a reason for why ICE did not take up the case. And I don't know about that last document, but those first two documents totally exist somewhere. No way they don't. But, explained the Fourth Circuit, administrative agencies are blessed with a, quote, presumption of regularity, end quote, meaning that when, quote, an agency certifies that the administrative record it has provided at the court is complete, courts generally presume it to be so absent clear evidence to the contrary, end quote. Better be darn good at depositions, because I don't know how you'll ever meet that burden otherwise. Such evidence didn't exist here. And actually, it turns out, according to the court, the FDNS memo was apparently in the record. The FDNS notes, well, the Fourth Circuit isn't clear they exist at all. Same with the ICE declination. Lots of arguments in this one. The next one is that the denial itself was arbitrary and capricious under the APA. Classic APA argument. Plus, said the Mestinex, it violated the BIA's recent decision in Matter of Singh, which clarified a standard of proof for marriage fraud cases. Indeed, the Messinics pointed out, USCIS didn't even cite to sing in their decision. But at the Fourth Circuit, the standard is and has always been, quote, substantial and probative evidence, end quote, that marriage fraud was conspired or committed, which equates to a standard of, quote, more than probably true that the marriage is fraudulent, end quote. And that's the standard that USCIS used here, said the court. Nor explain the Fourth Circuit, did USCIS violate its own regulations by failing to let the Mestinex inspect the record? Not true. USCIS's general rule is that an applicant or petitioner, quote, shall be permitted to inspect the record, which constitutes the basis for the decision, end quote. That's 8 CFR section 103.2 B16, and it's good to know. But there are four exceptions, and one is for, quote, derogatory information unknown to the petitioner or applicant, end quote. In such cases, where such information exists, USCIS is supposed to instead let the applicant know of the derogatory information and then give them the opportunity to explain or rebut. And that's what happened here, the NOID, remember? The Messinics argued that that rule isn't an exception, but it's instead a separate regulatory notice requirement. That is, you got to show the applicant the derogatory information and then give them an opportunity to explain. But the Fourth Circuit disagreed. It's an exception to requiring review of the record. That exception does seem to swallow the rule, though. When would USCIS then be required to show an applicant who's about to lose the record? Because only applicants who are about to lose want to see the record. Anyway, finally, the Mestinex challenged how USCIS weighed the favorable and unfavorable evidence, which, let's be honest, is really what these things are all about, but they're often the hardest arguments to win on legally, which is why we hide them behind five very smart legal challenges first. And lose it did, because the Fourth Circuit does not believe it, quote, our role to reweigh the evidence and substitute our judgment for that of the agency, end quote. It also wasn't a due process violation, said the court. 
Quote, the Mestinex had a chance to respond and submit rebuttal evidence. USCIS then issued, as noted, a careful decision considering that rebuttal evidence and explaining why it did not refute the agency's initial findings. In the case of a Form I-130 petition, that is certainly enough process to pass constitutional muster. End quote. Which I guess means that Mr. Mestinex is on a path to removal? Pretty rough. Assuming, of course, that it's Angel's final statement that was the correct one, and not the interview at a Starbucks with FDNS. That was an intellectual and factual roller coaster. Glad I did the case. And that's all I got this week. And that is Mestinek Bijido. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M, Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.